0: Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Thank you very much, David, for leading us in prayer. Uh, You can open your Bibles, please, to the book of Genesis. Uh, We're still in chapter 1 of Genesis, so very easy passage to find very beginning of your Bibles. If you didn't bring a Bible, that's okay. We do have paperback Bibles that are distributed throughout the church underneath the chairs. Um, so if you don't see one immediately in front of you, you should be able to find one pretty close and uh, open that Bible to page one. Very common uh, difficulty, common dispute, I guess, that, that takes place is between... Um, those who would say they're people of science and those who are people of faith. And there's a common assumption that if you're committed to one, you can't be committed to the other. If you're a person of faith, that means you can't be a person of science. If you're a person of science, you can't be a person of faith. And sometimes people push this a a little further, and they say, actually, if you're just a rational or intelligent person, (laughs) you can't have anything to do with faith or religion. Once you begin to get serious about faith, you have to kind of leave your brain aside. You can't use your rationality <clears throat> rationality, or your intellect. One of them has to go. Well, as we're going through this sermon series on the book of Genesis, we find that this is the book of the Bible where it seems like science and faith clash the most. And sometimes for people, this is just a, a deal-breaker. People committed to to science sometimes find that they just cannot bring themselves to commit themselves to Christianity because of alleged problems and discrepancies. But I want to share this with you. I came across this information as I was preparing the message this week. I wonder if you know that in the 20th century, of the people who have won the Nobel Prize, 60% of them are professed Christians. 72% 72% of those Nobel Prize winners in chemistry are professed Christians. 65% of Nobel Prize winners in the area of physics profess Christians. 62% of Nobel Prize winners in the field of medicine profess Christians. So it would seem that there doesn't have to be a discrepancy between science and faith, between religion and rationality. I I don't mean any disrespect to science or to the scientists among us, but I would say that science, while it gives us a number of answers, it actually answers the easier questions. Uh, It's the Bible. It's Christianity that answers the harder questions, like, who am I? And why am I here? Why do I exist? What is my purpose? What happens when I die? Why is there evil and suffering in this world? Is there a God? Is there a creator? And if there is, can I know him? Can I have any assurance that he's for me and not against me? Can I know that God loves me? Those are hard questions, and impossible questions actually for science to answer, but they are questions that the scriptures give us very clear ...reassuring and comforting answers. Uh, Science and faith, we need them both. Science tells us what is. Christianity tells us what ought to be. Science gives us facts. Christianity gives us meaning and purpose. It's one thing to live. It's another thing to know why you live. And that's what we look to the Scriptures for. And what better way to figure that out than to go back to the very beginning... ...and see where it all began. And So that's why we're here in the book of Genesis going through this uh, great book, just one passage at a time. Last week, we looked at the first three days of creation, and today we're going to continue where we left off and consider the second three days of creation, days 4, 5, and 6, and those are described for us in verses 14 to 25 of chapter 1. So, if you're able, please stand and let me read this passage to us that we'll be considering today. Genesis 1, 14 to 25. <clears throat> so third day is complete, and now verse 14. God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. "'And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, "'and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. "'So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves "'with which the waters swarm according to their kinds "'and every winged bird according to its kind, and God saw that it was good.'" the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Holy Spirit, we plead with you to be present among us and open our eyes and open our hearts to behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So, we'll pick up where we left off. As I just mentioned, we finished day three last week. We'll begin here with the fourth day of creation. Now, there's something kind of interesting going on in terms of the pattern of the way this is written and set up. Um, There's a correspondence, actually, between the first three days and the second three days, a correspondence between days one and three and four to six, and so we might describe it like this. In days one and three, one, two, three... God seems to be making a place for everything, and then in days four through six, God is putting everything in its right place. So, days one to three, God's creating an environment, a place, and then in days four to six, which we'll look at here today, God is creating things to put into the environment that He created. So, uh, we're at day four now. That corresponds to day one. You might remember day one, God said, let there be light. And now, here in day four, we're having the creation of uh, the luminaries, that is, the things that are going to be in place to give light on a constant, perpetual basis. In other words, the sun, the moon, and the stars. And so we see that in verses 14 and 15. These lights in the heavens, they separate the day from the night. And we see the purpose of of these luminaries. They're going to be signs for the seasons and the days and the years. They're going to help regulate the way time passes. And they will also, verse 15, exist to shed light onto the earth. And the passage goes on to uh, give specific names, well, at least to kind of point out what each of these things is. In verse uh, 16, God made the two great lights. The great light, what is that? Well, the sun, right? The great light that rules the day, and he makes the lesser light, that is the moon, to rule the night. And then, as an almost kind of an afterthought, the writer just throws in, oh yeah, (laughs) and the stars, The stars, I mean the stars, which are some of the most magnificent things for us to behold. You know, this is an exercise I would encourage us all to engage in on a regular basis. That is, when the sun goes down, go out in your backyard and just look up at the sky and gaze at the stars. How long has it been since you've done that? (laughs) I mean, we are so easily distracted, our eyes so often fixed on our phones downward. How about looking upward and spend some time looking at the stars and the sun, and the moon, and allow your heart to be filled with a sense of amazement and wonder about the universe in which we live. Do that. Do that. We consider the stars. There is something phenomenal to consider about how God has made the stars, what the stars tell us. Now, there are limits on what we should do with the stars. We are not to worship the stars, and so In the time when this was written, people would have been very commonly inclined to do that, and we've talked in the past about how one of the points here of Genesis is God is saying he's the only true God, nothing in creation should be worshipped, and that includes the stars, the sun, and the moon. In fact, Deuteronomy 4.19, there's a command, when you see the star and the sun and the moon, don't bow down to them and worship them. There's a temptation in the human heart to do that. And there's also a temptation to look to the stars for some kind of guidance in our life through astrology. We are Christians. We don't do that. We look to God and His Spirit and His Word for guidance. But we can contemplate the stars. We can think about them and allow our minds to be blown. This is the number of stars that are visible to us in the universe there on the screen. And I don't even know how to say that number. It's Ten to the 23rd power, that's the number of stars that are visible to us, so there there could be more. Ten to the 23rd power, stars, and every one of them belongs to God. These are God's stars. They're not just up there roaming around aimlessly. They belong to our Creator. The farthest star away is 18 billion light years away. I mean, these things, these are things that our minds cannot comprehend. Uh, That just gives you a taste of how big this universe is that God has created. The sun is a star. The sun is the star that is nearest to us. We look at the star, the sun, and it's an enormous thing. Uh, Do you know that you can fit one million earths inside the sun? And the sun is just an average star as stars in the galaxy go. There are larger stars than the sun. And every one of them belongs to God. These are God's things. (laughs) They belong to him. And our call to worship, which I'll bring to your attention again here, tells us this. He determines the number of the stars and gives to all of them their names. He even knows them each. Great is the Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. It's almost an understatement, isn't it? (laughs) when we consider all that God has created, the sun, moon, and the stars. What do we learn from this? Well, science tells us lots of things about the sun, moon, and the stars. Science will tell us how big the stars are, how far away they are, how many there are. We value that. We're thankful for that. But it's the Bible that tells us why the stars and the sun and the moon exist, that one of their chief purposes is as a testimony to the glory of our Creator, to the glory of God. That's why they exist. That is, when you look up in the sky at night and see the sun, moon, and stars, what the Word says, what the Scriptures say, is that that is persuasive evidence to you that not only does God exist, but that you owe Him your life and your obedience and your allegiance. The skies speak. God speaks through His created order. The heavens declare something. That is the glory of God. This is what Romans 1 tells us. For God's invisible attributes, namely His eternal power, His divine nature, they've been clearly perceived. It's like Paul is saying, it's obvious, it's clear, it's self-evident. Ever since the creation of the world, from the very beginning, there's been this testimony. And it's been communicated in the things that have been made, including the sun, moon, and the stars. And then he adds at the end, so they, we, are without excuse. No one has an excuse to stand before God on the last day and say, God, there's not enough evidence No one has an excuse to stand before God and say, I sought you, but I couldn't find you. You should have revealed yourself to me. You didn't. God will say, I did reveal myself to you every single day of your life in the created order, and in particular, in the wonder we behold in the universe in the sun, moon, and the stars. John Calvin says this, wherever you cast your eyes, there's no spot in the universe wherein you cannot discern at least some sparks of his glory. The luminaries testify to the glory of God. Now, um, a debate, a a discussion that comes up when we look at Genesis chapter 1 and the description of these days is the question of what kind of days these are. Are these regular 24-hour days, or when Genesis talks about days, does the writer, does Moses mean something else? Now, some of you might be sitting here and thinking, what are you talking about? I've never heard about this. Who cares about this? This seems irrelevant to me. This might be the first time you've even heard that it's an issue. But there are others who spend a lot of time talking about this and arguing and debating about this. For some people, this is a really big deal. Uh, For some people, this is the difference between whether you're really committed to the Scriptures or not. That is how long are these days? What kind of days are these? And so I want to take just a moment here to give you a very brief bird's-eye view of some of the common views that are held about the creation days, theories about creation days. So first of all, here's one view. It's called the day-age view. The day-age view simply says that the days here in Genesis 1 are basically ages. They're not literal 24-hour days. They are uh, periods of time that are indefinite in length and could possibly be thousands or even millions of years. And one of the big reasons why we have these different theories about the length of creation days is because of what science has told us about the age of the earth. And so, Many theologians are working hard to try to reconcile what science says and what the Bible says, and many find it hard to believe, given what we believe to be true about the age of the earth, how these days can be merely 24 hours. That's that's kind of the background for all of this. So the day-age view says, well, look, you know, look at what Peter says. He says uh, that one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. So we clearly have a biblical precedent. where a day is not literal, and sometimes we'll talk this way, right? We'll say, yeah, back in the day when I used to do this or do that. When we say that, we don't mean back in the day as if it's one specific day on the calendar. We mean back in a period of time in my past. And so this is what the day age view says. These are not 24-hour days. It's just an age. Now, the problem with that, though, is uh, that it doesn't really seem to be a, a natural reading of, of the text, but more specifically, what critics of this view will say is that if you'll notice on day three, the plants and the trees were planted, right? Now we've got day four where the sun is put into the sky. Well, if the day ages millions of years, how did those plants and trees created on day three live for millions of years with no sun, because the sun wasn't created until day four. How could that happen? It's a good question. (laughs) Seems like that would be difficult. Uh, So that's one critique of of the day-age view. Here's another view, the framework view. The framework view says that these days should be viewed as kind of a metaphor that this is a a literary device that Moses is using just to communicate that God has created all things. But he's not trying to communicate the length of the days. He's not saying that this creation week was exactly 144 hours. (laughs) What, What he's doing is being kind of creative, maybe even a little poetic, using a literary device to communicate God's creation of all things. And so the framework view would say these days aren't meant to be chronological. They're not in sequential order, that it's topical. So the writer never intended for us to read this as a regular week, but just six different kind of areas or periods when God created. But the problem with that is that you've got every day numbered, first day, second day, third day, fourth day. I mean, typically when we talk that way, we think in terms of a a progression, an order, And we even see a progression of events going on in creation, right? We've got, uh, you know, light and darkness, water, then we get plants, then we get dry land, then we get animals, then we get human beings. And there's a chronological progress that seems to be moving through the way these days are described. And so that seems to me to be a problem for the framework view. But lastly, there is what's called the calendar day view, the 24-hour creation day view, which says that these days are literal. The days described in Genesis 1 are intended to be 24-hour days. Now, how do we account for the age of the earth? What uh, supporters of this, view, of, this, of this view would say is that God created things with an appearance of age. And a perfect example of that would be Adam and Eve, right? We don't believe that Adam and Eve were created as, as babies, They were created as mature adults. We don't know how old they were, but they were clearly created with an appearance of age. And so perhaps that's how God created the entire universe. He created it in a state in which age, at least apparently, already existed. We see the repeated phrase here in in this first chapter of evening and morning before every mention of the second, third, fourth day. That certainly seems to suggest a regular 24-hour day. This is the view that's been most widely held throughout church history. Now, there is a problem with this view as well, and that is, again, we're on the fourth day. The sun is created on the fourth day. If we're going to say that these are all 24-hour days, how do we account for days one through three when there was no sun? (laughs) Because the existence of the sun is how we determine how long a day is. So the sun was missing how do we do that? I think that's a, a legitimate and good question. Um, God did say, let there be light on the first day, so perhaps that light served, as a, 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 you know, served the same purpose as the sun would serve later on, um, but that's a critique of this view. My, my point in presenting these to you is so that you can see that each view has its problem. There is no airtight view here. Now, Personally, I think I favor the 24-hour creation day view. That's what I favor. I, I think that's just the most natural reading of the text. I think that's what most people would have thought, reading this to begin with. I don't think that they would have come up with these other more elaborate, complicated theories, many of which have only been presented since the dawn of the scientific revolution. But in any case... I want to make sure that it is understood that this is a secondary matter, not a primary matter. This is not a hill to die on. That There are primary matters for us as Christians that we are sinners before God, that he has created us, that Jesus Christ has come as the God-man, fully God, fully man, has lived a perfect life, went and laid down his life on the cross, is resurrected from the dead, and calls on us to repent and believe in him. Those are the primary matters. Those are hills to die on. I don't think the length of creation days is that important. It's not unimportant, it's in the Word of God. Let's study it, let's think about it, let's talk about it, but uh, let's not divide over it. Our denomination, the PCA, had a study report out in the year 2000 in which um, it stated this. We recognize that uh, good men and women will differ on some matters of the creation account We urge the church to recognize honest differences and join in continued study of the issues with energy and patience and with a respect for the views and integrity of each other. Very important for us as Christians to to know what's worth fighting for and to know in which cases we should defer out of respect and humility to our brothers and sisters. My view on this could change. I am open to your comments. I hold to it loosely, but... uh, uh, I've uh, in, in many of the people that I've read about this, people much brighter, much smarter, much more experienced than me, uh, trained theologians who say that the view that they hold is the view of the person they read last. You know, whatever it is happens to be freshest in their mind, that's what they hold to. But when you read the defense of another view, that seems kind of convincing too. So, complex issue, but we'll just leave it at that. The fourth day, let's go on. The fifth day... <coughs> The fifth day. So, okay, we got this correspondence, right, between days one and three and days four to six. So there's also a correspondence between the fifth day and then the second day. So remember in the second day, the waters were separated above the expanse, and then the waters below in the sea. So we had a reference to the sky and to the sea in verse uh, in day two. And now in day five, uh, God is putting things into that place. He's putting birds into the sky and then swarming creatures into the sea. And that's what we see in verses 20 to 23. Uh, in the sky, it says, the birds that fly above the earth, verse 20. Um, every winged bird, it talks about in verse 21. So they're put into the sky. And then uh, in the sea, there are swarms of living creatures, verse 20. And in verse 21, great sea creatures even are created. Now, this would have been significant for early readers of this because they would have been terrified of the great sea creatures. They didn't know what they were. There was something mysterious and threatening about the great sea creatures. And so here Moses says, yeah, the great sea creatures, they belong to God too. Uh, (laughs) Nothing to worry about there. God is not challenged or worried about the great sea creatures. He creates them. They belong to him. And so, that's one of the reasons why this is mentioned. And then we have, um, in verse 22, a command that is given to the the creatures, and that is that they would reproduce. Verse 22, God bless them, says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the waters and the seas, let the birds multiply on the earth. And then that brings the fifth day to an end. So, God creates the sea creatures, but then he doesn't create them again fresh every time a new sea creature comes along or a bird comes along. He, he creates them in such a way that they can self-replicate. And So this is woven into the creation order, this kind of reproduction um, that goes on in the animal kingdom. Now, in verse 21, this phrase shows up that I think is very important. Verse 21 after the winged birds are mentioned, it's according to its kind. That phrase, according to its kind or their kinds, it's mentioned two times in verse 21, two times in verse 24, three times in verse 25. Look at verse 25, made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. Now, when the Bible repeats something like that, you generally want to pay attention. That means this is important. Now, why would that be important, that this would say over and over again, according to their kinds, according to their kinds? Well, what this means in a very simple way is just that animals reproduce according to their own kind, that they reproduce within the species category in which they exist. So, you know, dogs don't reproduce with frogs. They don't give birth to frogs. Uh, Horses don't give birth to snakes. It's not the way it works. They reproduce according to their kind. And monkeys and apes don't generate or give birth to human beings, which is a common view that we hear in, in in our culture, that we are evolved from the primates. And so, That's why this phrase is so important, is it introduces this issue. Isn't it just fascinating that thousands of years after this is written, it's still just as relevant today as it ever was? Because we have this view called evolution, or Darwinism, as it's sometimes called. And I wonder how you would respond if somebody asked you, as a Christian, do you believe in evolution? What is your response? I mean, that's a question you're likely to get in this day and age, Age. Do you believe in evolution? And the answer, I think, to that is, it depends. It depends what you mean by evolution. The word evolution actually just means change over time. In its most simplistic definition, that's it. And there's not a whole lot to argue about there, is it? I mean, we know that species change over time. But a further distinction is required, because um, we need to think about this question in terms of Microevolution, first of all, which is changes that take place within a kind or within a species, and what's called macroevolution. Macroevolution are changes that take place from one species to another. And this is central to the theory of Darwinism. Darwinism expects or teaches that. Um, living matter comes from non-living matter, that consciousness comes from non-consciousness, that we have evolved from lower forms over the course of many, many years where random mutations have taken place over large periods of time. This is the reigning accepted view in our world today. If you challenge this view, you might be regarded as somebody who doesn't think rationally or is not intelligent. It's a very frequent accusation against this charge, but there are many scientists who call Darwinism into question. And the reason why is because of this. There is a, a problem with the theory of Darwinism having to do with the fossil record. The fossil record is simply what we might call a history of life on our planet. Animals have left their imprints in certain rocks that have been preserved over the years and so the fossil record is a collection of these rock imprints and from this fossil record certain conclusions are drawn about the evolution of species over time. But here's the thing, in the fossil record there is no example of a new species evolving from a different species. There's, there's no hint of that. It's what's called a gap in the fossil record. It's called the the missing link, that there are no intermediate forms that exist from one species to another. Now, Charles Darwin himself knew that when he wrote about this in the late 1800s, and his view was, well, the the link will eventually be found. We'll, We'll get to that link, and we'll see how one species evolves to another. Problem is that hasn't happened. It's been 150 years now, and it hasn't happened. Now, I know some hold out that it still will happen, but at this point anyway, we have to say that the fossil record just confirms what the Bible is telling us, that reproduction happens according to their kinds, and not from one kind to another, because that's not how God has designed our world. This guy, Norman Nevin, a uh, specialist in genetics from Queen's University in Belfast, said the evolutionary theory has a major difficulty in this lack of evidence for the number of transitional fossils needed to support a process of evolutionary transformation. 150 years on since the publication of Darwin's work, the fossil record does not support the theory of evolution. I just want you to be encouraged, friends. We we, we want to engage with different views in our world, but you, as believers in the Scriptures and as Christians, don't need to feel threatened by views that come along that seem to challenge the authority of the Scriptures. The grass withers, the flowers fade, theories come and go, and the Word of the Lord stands forever. And that's not changing. And so, you have an opportunity. You've got to decide, what worldview am I going to embrace? You can believe in Darwinism as kind of a, a mindless, random, accidental, unguided, meaningless development of life, or you can look to the Scriptures which teach us that there is purpose, that there is meaning, that there is a God in control, there's a God of love that you can know, that He has a reason for your existence, He has a purpose for where he is taking you and your life does have value in this world you are valuable in the eyes of God because you're not an accidental mutation over thousands and thousands of years so we see a great clue to that here in the fifth day with this little phrase according to their kinds let's go to the sixth day verses 24 to 25 Let's consider the correspondence again, right? So we're day six, day six corresponds to day three. You might remember in day three, the waters were separated and dry land appears. So now the question is, who's gonna live on the dry land? And the answer is that God is going to create the animal kingdom to live on the dry land. Land animals, we've got the birds in the sky, we have got the swarming creatures in the sea, but now, On the land, we're going to see domesticated animals, referred to as livestock, here in verse 24, sheep, cattle, etc. There are the beasts of the earth, it says, in verse 24. That would be the non domesticated animals, predatory animals, lions, tigers, etc. And then there are creeping things, the smaller animals, mice, lizards, snakes, these are all created. And one thing that might be a new thought to you is that animals have a very prominent place throughout the Scriptures. They actually show up over and over again. Uh, Animal lovers are going to love this because God loves animals. And we should too. God loves animals. Animals. I mean, think of the Noah's ark, right? I mean, we'll get to that, God willing, when we get to the later chapters of, of Genesis. At this rate, it's going to take us a little while, but we, we hope to get there eventually. But God is very intentional in making sure the animals are spared from his judgment. Uh, Psalm 104 says this Lord, how manifold are your works? In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures, innumerable living things, both small and great, and they all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. Isn't that a beautiful picture of the hand of God just reaching down to the the rabbits and the cows and the deer on the hills, just opening his hand and gently and generously feeding them all. He loves the animals. He takes care of the animals. He's good to the animals. And it's a godly thing for Christians to care well for the animals. Proverbs 12.10 says, the righteous man takes care of his beast. And that can involve our care for farm animals. It can involve our care for our pets and how we care for our pets. Godly people care for their animals. This is important, I think, because it teaches us how to be compassionate to the vulnerable. Sadly, animals are sometimes subject to the cruelest intentions of human beings who have taken advantage of them in so many ways. They're vulnerable, they're weak, they need protection. And as we care for the animals, we learn how to do that. We learn how to better care for the vulnerable human beings in our lives as well. It was Abraham Lincoln who said, I have no time for a religion that doesn't make life better for a man's dog or cat. Christianity does want life to be good for for dogs and cats. Francis Schaeffer said, if we see an ant on the sidewalk, we step over it. Now, I don't think stepping on an ant is the unpardonable sin, um, but to have a high regard for living things is a good thing. Animals can teach us, too. The Scriptures tell us... uh, in Proverbs 30 that the ant, I know more of an insect than an animal, but Proverbs 30 says that ants are wise because they store up food. They work hard. Ants are hard workers. And Proverbs say, look at the ant and learn, human being. Work hard. Look ahead. Be responsible. Get ready. That's what you learn from the ants. And then how about what Jesus says about the, the birds? The birds aren't they're not anxious. They're not worried. They're not, they don't have high blood pressure. They know God takes care of them, and Jesus says that. God provides for the birds. He gives them every single thing that they need. And so human beings, learn from the birds. Don't worry. Don't be anxious. If God takes care of the birds, who are much less valued than you, don't you think he's going to take care of you? Let the animal kingdom instruct you. <laughs> But there's one last way that the animal kingdom can instruct us, and that is we actually can learn something about the gospel from the animal kingdom. That there is a particular animal that has a very primary prominent place in in the gospel. Do you remember the story of the Passover in the book of Exodus? God announces his intention to bring judgment upon Egypt. He's going to kill the firstborn son of every Egyptian family and the Israelites naturally they want to know how can we be spared of this and here's what God says, he he says go get an animal in particular get a lamb one of the most vulnerable creatures a a creature that we regard as innocent go get a, a blameless innocent little lamb and kill it kill that lamb, get its blood, put it on the doorposts, and God says, when I come by and I see that blood on the doorpost, I'm, I'll pass over. I will not bring my judgment upon you because I've seen the blood. Now, later in the Gospels, John the Baptist is on the scene, and John sees Jesus coming, and he points to Jesus, and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus wasn't vulnerable. I wouldn't describe him that way, but he was innocent. He was blameless. And he did shed his blood, just like that Passover lamb. And he went there, not against his will, but voluntarily out of love and obedience to his Father. And he laid down his life, and he shed blood for you and for me. So that God now will pass over you, will not bring the condemnation to you and the judgment to you that you deserve but he sees the blood of Jesus and he passes over you and instead takes you as his child, as his son, as his daughter and assures you of his love now and forever and forever and forever. So what an uh, amazing thing that an animal gives us such a a beautiful picture of the gospel. And today, God will take away your sin as well. If you will turn from your self-reliance, turn from your morality and all of your religious performances and leave them behind and cling to jesus alone the lamb of god and he will remove all of your guilt and all of your shame now there's one thing that we don't see about the animals and that is that they are not created in the image of god we notice that as a very important omission but you and i are and that gives us great dignity in this world and that's what we're going to look at next sunday god willing let's pray Lord, your word is great, is wise, is so full of truth, and we are grateful that you have spoken to us in it. Father, thank you for all that you've done for us in your Son to redeem us and to make us your own. And all these things we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen.